Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today we are joined by the wonderful Z Chan to talk all about his current projects. He is the executive producer and showrunner for Gremlins Secrets of the Mogwai, as well as the co-showrunner and executive producer on the upcoming series I'm a Virgo, as well as being the co-founder and publisher of TKO Studios. So just, just a few things going on at the moment for you, it sounds like. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. And and starting with talking a little bit about Gremlins, um, you know, I love the way that it feels like it pays homage to the movies and and to a fan base that have really loved and adored this, this set of characters and this franchise for so long. And yet it also feels like such a great way to introduce new people to the world. And so particularly when you looked at the idea of creating an animated prequel to Gremlins, what was the starting point in figuring out visually what you wanted that to look like and what you wanted the specific style of animation to be? So that's a really good question. Um, I had come up through independent film and I also was a visual artist for a few years after college. And I always painted and, you know, I wanted to make sure that the show had a really organic look to it. And so that's why we developed this technology where um, we were calling it two and a half D where the characters are CG, um, but the backgrounds are two-dimensional. And that was so we could create like a very painterly look to the show. Um, a lot of the textures on the characters and the backgrounds are all hand-painted. And that was partially because, you know, sometimes CG shows, they can kind of age. And we wanted it to feel kind of timeless. Um, one of the reference points for it was uh, Spirited Away uh, by Miyazaki. And... Knowing that, um, we also wanted to move the camera really cinematically. Um, Amblin, those movies were like a, a huge influence on us uh, when we were growing up. And so wanting to tell the story using the camera, uh, that was something that we really wanted with the show. And, and speaking of influences on the show as well, I've heard you mention things like Goonies and, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there is this real sense of a quest at the center of it for Sam, who's the main character, um, kind of taking care of Gizmo and, and trying to return him to his home. Um, and so how did that idea of this really nostalgic quest quality really inform the way that you were thinking about it narratively? You know, the, the movie has the DNA of the original Gremlins movies into it, obviously, um, or the show does. And, you know, we wanted it to totally be funny, but also scary. But then also, in addition to that, things like you mentioned Goonies and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, a lot of those Amblin movies have that kind of like treasure hunting, epic adventure quality to them. And especially something like Gremlins and Goonies, uh, even though the characters might be younger, they're still existing in a an adult world with life or death stakes. And that was something that was really important to us as we were putting together the show. Um, one of the things I was really excited about was the backdrop of 1920s China telling the prequel where the old Mr. Wing from the original movies was only 10 years old. And we're really watching like an origin story of his friendship with Gizmo, but also, you know, just wanting to do something that felt this kind of imaginative and epic and could capture the imagination the way that those movies did for, for me and the other writers and the crew uh, when we were kids. And you're talking there as well about the idea of, of the stakes being very high and with, within this series, they really have that sense as well. Um, and so tonally, how did you find the aspect of when there's darker moments, you know, particularly with the, the villainous characters that come into play and, and elements of magic, how did you find the, the element of tonally, how dark can we take it where it's still going to work for a younger audience, um, but actually it's going to be kind of 
something that really respects the younger audience as well as the adult audience? You know, in a lot of the stuff I've worked on, um, especially my first feature, Children of Invention, which was a, a family drama, but it's about two children who are left to fend from themselves when their mother is, is arrested for taking part in a, she doesn't realize it's illegal, Ponzi scheme. And, you know, in that movie, you know, there's, there's, the kids are really resilient. And I remember being that age and feeling like, you know, I hated when people talked down to me and I, I, I felt that kids are more resilient than people kind of give them credit for. And so, you know, a lot of the people in the writer's room had, were also parents and wanted to create something that, you know, parents and kids can watch together. And I just think that, especially with something like Gremlins, where, you know, I watched that movie way too young, like everybody did. I mean, everybody in the, who worked on the show in some way was traumatized by Gremlins. And I think that um, that tone was something that we really wanted to capture. And, you know, I think that one of the benefits of having it be a horror comedy to some degree is you can actually make the scares scarier because you know that you can undercut it with a laugh. And then you can also undercut a laugh with something that's really scary. And so, you know, being able to adjust those dials were really, were really interesting, you know, throughout the process, whether it was what's on the page, you know, looking at the animatics, um, one thing that we were really thankful for was that Amblin and Spielberg, Warner Brothers Animation, and Joe Dante, the director of the original movies, who's a consulting producer on the show, they were just always pushing us, like, go deeper with the emotions, go deeper with the scares, um, look for the last where you can. And that kind of encouragement, I think, really gave us a lot of, um, a lot of confidence in the writer's room. And with what you just said there as, as well about, you know, you can kind of undercut it with a slightly more humoristic moment or different tonalities in between. Did you also find that animation as a medium really lent itself to that space of being able to lean into the darkness a little bit more? Because at the same time, it's this really beautiful kind of drawn aesthetic on the screen that we're looking at in this very adorable central character of Gizmo. Yeah, I mean, I think that for us, because um, I had not worked in animation before, but I have um, a comic book company and I've written a couple of the books. And so, you know, what's so nice about a comic book and animation, obviously there's things like time and budget, but you're kind of unrestricted in some ways in that, you know, every episode of Gremlins kind of takes place in a different place. There's all these spirits and creatures from Chinese mythology and to be able to build that from the ground up and really create every aspect of it with the team was um, was really rewarding. And and I love that you're bringing up the, the the aspects of Chinese mythology that come into it. And there is you know this real mysticism at play throughout the series as well, and elements of magic um, that we get to engage in in the story. Within that, were there parameters to the structure of how far you wanted to push things in, in that realm and in those regards as well? Um, or did you kind of give yourself just that unbridled freedom of if we have an idea, you know, nothing is too out there to play around with? I mean, one of the things in the writer's room that I try to encourage is that there's no, I mean, that's the time for to be as creative as you want to be and to listen to everyone's ideas. And in terms of the Chinese mythology part of it, you know, these are a lot of the spirits and creatures and monsters were things that I grew up with, um, whether it was hearing about them from my parents or seeing them in Hong Kong movies in the 80s, or uh, there's a TV show called Journey to the West, which is about a lot of supernatural stuff. It's based on one of the oldest Chinese texts. And that was really a big influence for the show in terms of the structure, because that movie is, uh, or that book 
is about a big adventure. Um, it's about a monk who's trying to transport some sacred text deep into China. And because he's a monk, he can't really fight. And so he surrounds himself with um, the monkey king. And there's like a big bearded guy who has like a rake as a weapon and a, a pig headed man, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, every, every chapter, they kind of come up against a new spirit or creature. And the fun thing about um, Chinese mythology is it, it hasn't really been exposed in terms of Western audiences. When you deal with something like a, a werewolf or a vampire or a zombie, you kind of know what the rules are. And so part of the fun of this was, you know, us researching, you know, me and the, the Chinese members of the crew or the writer's room who had had context for what these creatures were all about and being able to tell it almost like a, a mystery in every episode where we know that our audience doesn't necessarily have a context for it. And so you're kind of like learning about it at the time and uh, as you're watching and, and that kind of peeling back of the onion was, was really fun. Um, and it was a, it was somewhat different from the things I'd worked on before where, you know, I, I think of myself as like a fan person first and uh, like a writer second. And so a lot of the stuff I've worked on, like whether it was once upon a time or Gotham, like the audiences kind of have a, a, a an understanding of what, you know, that world and those characters are and to go into something new while still bringing in the mythology of the gremlins um, you know, it was a challenge, especially with 10 episodes. There was so much that we want to do, um, but we're really, we're really proud of this first season. I love that. And, you know, going, going back to the fact that you were bringing up that this is the first time that you've worked within animation on a narrative series. Um, I was interested in just the art form of working with expression in such a specific way for all of the characters, because obviously the way that the characters facially respond to things is such a huge part of the medium of animation and particularly in working in a show like this where you have gremlins where they don't even have speech and so again it's so much as relying on the way that we're watching their faces animate what what was the difference in that connectivity and really being able to create and craft that in a completely different way than when you're working with actors with live performance you know it, it it's really interesting in that the original Gremlins movies to me are the closest things to like a uh, live action Looney Tunes because, you know, Gizmo can't speak, the evil Mogwai can't speak. And so you're almost like watching a silent film or like a cartoon where, you know, maybe some of the characters don't speak. And just to be able to tell the story visually was a, a really unique challenge, but also coming from comic books. Um, you know, one of the things we, that we do at TKO Studios is we really try to work with artists that um, maybe don't necessarily fit within the superhero genre because you know, when you're doing superhero books, a lot of times their faces are covered by a mask. And we really want to make sure that um, I think our paramount thing when we're casting a book is finding an artist where, who has a, has a good understanding of like face acting and to be able to tell the story via pe people's faces, because I mean, to me, that's, how you become connected with a character and how you become connected to a story. Absolutely. And, you know, with that idea of as well of kind of putting yourself in the audience's shoes with TKO Studios, it feels like you've really thought kind of from nuts to bolts about the creators that you're working with, the people that you're bringing into the realm, and even just the, the distribution model of putting out multiple different stories at a time, putting out the full series so that people can kind of do a full binge read of something where it's not, I need to wait for the next episode, or, you know, the next volume of this to come out. Um, how has the way 
way that you yourself are, are a direct consumer and, and the direct audience for the content that you're creating with the studio informed the way that you've created this business model from the ground up? You know, for, for comic books, um, a lot of it was looking at it from the outside and trying to, you know, cause I'm, when we, when me and my co-founder broke into comics, you know, we had come very much from the outside of the industry and we were fans, but that meant that we didn't bring a lot of the baggage of like, this is how it's always been done. And my editor in chief, Sebastian Gerner kind of, he puts it this way, which is as we started talking about the company, we started thinking like common sense, what is the best way for audiences to consume books in 20, at the time it was 2018, you know, not looking at what was the best way in the 1950s and the 1960s. And that outsider perspective, I think, gave us a leg up in terms of our distribution model, the types of books we were putting together, um, and also just putting, creating a comic book company that, you know, I as a fan would have wanted when I was growing up. And to me, it's somewhat similar when it comes to writing a TV show and show running something is approaching it like, well, what, what would I most want to see? And for something like Gremlins, which has, you know, such a, you know, history and a fan base, you know, for us, we really wanted to create a show that would appeal to existing fans of the Gremlins movies, but also bring in new fans. And so looking at it from a fan, like, what is the beating heart of this franchise? How do we appeal to people who love that? And not try to reinvent the wheel on that side of things, but also try to reinvent as much as you can so it, it feels fresh and it feels new. I also love with TKO that you're you're working directly with comic book stores, so you're not relying on a third party for the distribution model as well. And so how does that influence the way that you're thinking about the stories that you're telling and, and the writers and creators that you want to bring into the fold, because you have such a direct communication to kind of really see what people are responding to in a way that you wouldn't, if it was just a middle person kind of shipping everything to stores and just seeing the numbers. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, we wanted that, you know, direct communication with the comic book stores, which are really like the lifeblood of the industry. And you know, I grew up going to my local comic book shop and, you know, really finding a community there at a time where like, maybe I didn't feel that way. Um, and it's just great. You know, I, I remember in eighth grade writing, they were like, write about an experience that you felt like a real sense memory. And I wrote about going into a comic book shop and smelling the the, the smell of like newsprint and all these, this incredible history, you're walking into like, not just a shop that has the newest comics, but a lot of times they have these back issues that span 50, 60, 70 years. And just to walk into a place that has that much history was really beautiful to me. And in terms of controlling the distribution, you know, we really wanted to make it as easy for comic book shops to purchase as possible. So now we do our own distribution. We're also uh, they can also buy through Diamond, which is the more typical way that people, uh, shops typically buy from. But where that really came into play is that we can be reactive in a way and to respond to comic book shops' needs. So during uh, COVID, I was, you know, that very early days of shutdown. Um, I follow a lot of comic book shops on social and I was seeing them post about, you know, limited hours, curbside pickups. And it could tell that they were really stressed out. And so I started calling comic book shops and checking in on them. 
And just hearing people's the stress in people's voices, because no one gets into comics for the money. They do it because they love it. They love the books. They love the fans. And at the time, the comic book distribution system was kind of shut down. And TK able to do a thing we call the, at the time, like the COVID-19 initiative, where we, within a week, um, put uh, anybody who purchased a book off our website, there was a drop-down menu where they could select their local comic book shop and we would send 50% of every sale to the comic book shop. And so we sent about 1200 checks to 600 stores over the three months that we were, um, we were doing the initiative. And for some stores, it was just kind of a drop in the bucket, but for other stores, it was really meaningful. And to be able to make that change and to be reactive, kind of like a startup would be, um, I mean, I think that that really was important at the time. And we were glad that we were able to, to do something good for the comic book shops at a time where, you know, because of the inertia of the system, if we weren't able to do things ourselves, we wouldn't have been able to do it. I really, really love that. And I did also want to talk about your series, I'm a Virgo, which you're the co-showrunner on and, and working with Boots Riley and in crafting such a beautiful story within that. Um, and within that, you know, we have Jarell Jerome playing the, the central character who's this 13 foot tall guy who's the only person of that stature in, in his world. And I love the fact that visually it's all in camera effects. And it sounds like that was something that was very important to Boots Riley from the very beginning. And so as you're all in the writer's room and, and crafting scenes, how did knowing that everything that we put on the page, we are going to create as a visual in camera effect influence the way that you were thinking about shaping scenes throughout the process of making a show like this? You know, so I had come to the show after the pilot was written. And I remember my rep saying, um, are you a Boots Riley fan? I was like, yeah, I loved Sorry to Bother You. I'm like, well, he has a pilot script that's looking for a co-show runner. It's about a 13 foot tall black kid growing up in Oakland. And I was like, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> and then I read the pilot and it was one of my favorite pilots, probably my favorite pilot I'd read in five, six, seven years. And what I was struck by was how human the story was um, and also how much was actually in the pilot in terms of things that were kind of in the ether, not just a personal story, but like a political story that you couldn't quite put your finger on, um, something that was allegorical. And when I met with Boots, um, one of the things that I talked to him about was, you know, I've worked in TV for a long time. You know, I came up through indie film, but I worked in network TV for the time I, I think I'd done a hundred episodes of network TV in five years. And I just kind of told them that there is a thing about the process that can sometimes sand down the edges of a project. And my commitment to him was basically anything you wanted to try, we would try to run it down in the writer's room until you wanted to pivot to something else. And I kind of feel like that's how um, that was a thing that convinced him. And Part of that was in the writer's room, even though we knew we were going to shoot it practically, we knew, I mean, we, how could you not? We knew that it would be a very difficult shoot, uh, a difficult show to shoot um, conceptually and practically, something that's that highly technical. But at the same time, you know, the writer's room is a safe space where I feel that the writer's room is not the place to censor yourself, that the production stuff, we'll figure it out. And if you start to think about production stuff too early. It can start to 
hinder the way that you can kind of be free about your thinking. And so setting those ground rules early on to be like, listen, let's just go for it. Let's take a bunch of big swings. There's no idea that's too crazy. We'll figure it out on the production side. I know that, I mean, Boots is an incredible director and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but that was kind of, that was kind of the vibe. There's, there's also a lot of beautiful nuance in watching a character who's been sheltered, you know, in their home with their parents without any exposure to the outside world, experiencing everything for the first time. Um, and so as you would go into each scene and in each new experience for the character, how would that kind of sit at the back of your mind of if this character has never experienced this before? what would his lens of the world be? Because it's also written in a way that there's a naivety to certain things that he hasn't learned and experienced, but he's also a very intelligent character as well and a very engaged character with a lot of curiosity. So I think that with um, even something like Sorry to Bother You, um, there's a lot of wackiness, there's a lot of absurdity, but there's still like a real beating heart to that character. And I think for us in the writer's room, we really want to make sure that even though we were layering in um, all this complexity, very like esoteric tonal shifts. And the fact is that it's a 13 foot tall character uh, living in the real world. The thing that we kept on coming back to was that it was still a coming of age story and a coming of age story on so many different fronts. And so a unifying principle for us in the writer's room was just to make sure that every episode had some new thing that Kudi was seeing for the first time and dealing with. And I kind of think that that's why, I mean, I hope that the show is universal in a way because everyone remembers what it was like to fall in love for the first time or lose a friend or um, become radicalized in a certain way. And that was really something that helped us in the writer's room um, to ground it emotionally. And because we were grounding it emotionally in that way, I think it almost allowed us to do things that were even crazier um, over the course of the series. And in, in a very different way, I mean, you were talking earlier about with Gremlins kind of being able to play tonally into some of the darker places by having comedic moments. And in a very different way, I'm a Virgo also kind of has a lot of social and political commentary throughout and, and tonally is able to lean into a lot of different spaces. You can have a comedic moment, but actually what it's saying in that moment is completely disarming the audience into being very open to certain ideology. And, and yet it's always very much propelled by character front and center for that discourse. Um, and so how did you find that kind of joy of the experimentation of different tones to be able to create a real discourse in a show like this? So I think that um, it goes a little bit back to the thing about sanding down the edges sometimes during the development process. And I will say that um, our studio and network partners, Media Res and Amazon, definitely pushed us in the same way that like we felt very encouraged by Amblin and Warner Brothers Animation and Gremlins. Um, but one of the things that sometimes happens is when there's a lot of different tones, the tendency is to feel like, okay, well, I, we have to kind of smooth out the tone. And then it creates a certain flatness to it. And Boots had a thing where he would say, you know, it just needs this. And for people who are listening to this in a podcast, he's kind of doing like a hand motion that's like a dolphin jumping through the ocean, <laughs> I guess is the best way of describing it. But I thought that was such a great way of putting it. It was like, it needs this, it needs ups and downs. It needs to go side to side when you're thinking something's going to go straight. And with 
everything that I do, you know, as a showrunner or co-showrunner, my tendency is to think, um, if they think you're going to do something, like, let's just try to do something that's not what you're thinking. And that um, variance in tones, a lot of the time, can become a tone in and of itself. And that's why Gremlins is such an iconic movie, is it's funny and it's scary and it's weird. You know, there's the, obviously the iconic Phoebe Cates very dark monologue in the middle of the movie and just trying to re just trying to capture that and also to push it further and further and make that really what the show is about and to have the audience feel like that is the tone the tone is there all there's all this disparate stuff going on and especially in an age of like peak tv i think you can't really you can't really be boring you have to really go for it Absolutely. And, you know, lastly, one of the things that I, I love the most in watching your career as a creative is you're never someone who just seeks out opportunities for yourself. You are such a proponent to lifting up other people's voices. And even just, I think it was an entire year where you were every single day posting on Twitter, other writers, other people whose careers were kind of on that ebb and flow up and you're always kind of trying to help connect people, introduce people. Um, and I was interested in just from having put so much time into thinking about that so specifically and so consciously, what have been some of the, the connections or successes that you've really seen come out of that on the back end? You know, I was, I've been talking about this a lot because, um, you know, I was in the writer's strike in 07 and even visually, the Writers Guild is very different than it used to be. I mean, in 07, I walked the Writers Strike line for a couple months here in LA and then a month in New York. And I'm not sure, I, I mean, this seems really crazy, but I'm not sure I met another Asian writer the entire time um, that I was on the Writers Strike line. And from day one, joining the picket line, just the makeup of the Writers Guild is very different. It's very diverse. There's many more women. Um, and you know, at the time I remember in 07 feeling really lonely. And even when I was doing my first feature and feeling like I was one of the only Asian American filmmakers out there, you know, there were a couple that had made their way before me, but looking back, I felt like I didn't, I, I didn't see anybody. And part of me doing this, you know, every day for a year, this Asian American signal boost, boosting other Asian American creatives, from different industries was just an excitement, you know, an excitement that there were all these really interesting Asian American creators coming up and, you know, beyond that, just interesting creators coming up through television, which, you know, historically has been a little more homogenous and coming out of it, I just feel like going to the writer strike line, meeting people that I've boosted before. I mean, I did 365 of those. So sometimes it's like, oh, you boosted me. I'm like, I, what's your name again? Like I, I know, and then once they say it, I remember them. Um, but you know, people got freelance scripts; they got representation from it, and to to feel like you know, as a as somebody who's now kind of like hopefully mid career, not towards the end of my career, um, but being able to 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 hand the ladder back was was really satisfying, and and to be able just to just know that, I mean, there's going to be only so much I'm going to be able to do, but there's, we're really just seeing the tip of the iceberg. I mean, every week it feels like there's a new cool Asian American show or movie or creator that's coming up. And 
you know, I get sent everything when it comes to staffing TV shows. And there's so many writers that are interesting that are coming up. And I just really hope that they're going to bring the art form much further than, than I can, you know, in my lifetime. I really, really love that. And, you know, also didn't want to let you go without shouting out the incredible lamp in the background that you made such a point to make sure was in the frame designed by your wife. Um, And thank you so much for talking about all of this. I really, really love the Gremlin series and I'm a Virgo and everything that you're doing with TKO Studios. So it's been such a pleasure to get the chance to talk to you today. Awesome. So nice speaking to you.